This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. In five. Deck for sound. Four. It's showtime. Three. Let's two, go. One. Welcome to the Pro Audio Suite, a podcast for audio and voiceover professionals. Don't forget to check us out on our Facebook, the Pro Audio Suite Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Pro Audio Suite. My name's Andrew Peters. In Sydney is Robbo. G'day. In Los Angeles, George Whittam. Hey there. And sitting next to George is his sidekick from the voiceover body shop, Dan Leonard. G'day, Dan. G'day. Good to talk to you. And we have a special guest uh, this week. Uh, we're going to be talking about acoustics, setting up home studios. It is Bobby Osinski. How are you, Bobby? Hello, and thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure having you on, I've got to say, because um, I've followed you for a couple of years now and watched a few videos with you with Warren Hewitt, um, some of your lectures talking about setting up home studios and the difference between acoustic treatment and isolation and all the bits and pieces, which is perfect for this show. Well, good. I'm happy to contribute. Who wants to open up? George, you, you've um, got a few questions, I'm sure, lined up. Well, I definitely wanted to start with, um, obviously, everybody's going to Google Bobby, but, you know, Bobby, can you give us a... Just a kind of, kind of a little quick background on how the road to where you are now. The really like short uh, MTV generation version of that story. Sure, sure. I was uh, a musician like most people would end up in the audio business. Uh, musician first, and but the guy that always fixed the PA system and cables and all that stuff as most of us do, wound up in, in recording and uh, with my band recorded a couple albums and it got me involved and still continued to do a, a dual path as a musician and as a engineer producer. And at some point in time, I decided that I didn't like being on the road anymore, so decided to dedicate myself to the studio, which I did. And uh, somewhere around there, I got into writing first magazines and then four magazines, I should say, and then writing books. And the uh, first book was the Mixing Engineer's Handbook, then the Recording Engineer's Engineer's Handbook, the Mastering Engineer's Handbook, and here we go, uh, 26 books later. I do that in podcasts and uh, blogs. I have two blogs that I write. I write for Forbes on the big picture music business and probably a couple other things I can't think of right now. Yeah, I've seen uh, I've seen one of your, um, well, listened to one of your uh, podcasts, which is the uh, BobbyOInnerCircle.com, which is a, right. it's a great podcast, uh, certainly worth checking out. In fact, the last one I heard was with Paul Ill, the bass player. That was really interesting. I found that fascinating about his take on the way the music industry has shifted. He's a real smart guy, for sure, one of my oldest friends, and actually the reason that I get into writing in an indirect way, uh, we were both touring together, and I remember him coming on the tour bus and saying one day, I just got a job writing for the music paper, which was this weekly paper in New York dedicated to music, and for some reason I thought, you know, if he could do that, so can I. I put feelers out to various magazines, and Mix Magazine was the one that allowed me to start my career in uh, as a writer. So thank you, Paul. I've sent a few photographs across just for you to have a look, and uh, we'll try and describe what you're looking at with the pictures. But basically, the, the pictures I've sent across is the building of the booth that I've got here. Looking at those pictures, should this work? Well, <laughs> I, I, yes, but I guess the biggest question is, what was your initial intent in doing this? Was it 
Isolation? Was that the most important thing for you? Uh, isolation and um, treating acoustically the, the room to make sure. Okay, you wanted, yeah. wanted it to sound good as well. Uh, the hardest thing to do is to get isolation. You certainly did the right thing by decoupling it by using uh, rubber. You know what? It's funny because we keep on getting new acoustic materials and they all work and they seem to work better. But the one thing that we can't do is isolation that's inexpensive because it's still brute force when it when it's all said and done. So as a result, uh, many people are disappointed because it'll cost them a, a lot of money in order to do that. But you're lucky in that you don't need an entire room. You need a booth. And a booth is much easier to deal with and much easier to isolate. So, yeah, I, you know, you did the right thing as far as I can tell from what you, you said here. The, um, I can't, I'm looking at the pictures now and I can't really tell what you used for your acoustic treatment. It looks like some acoustic foam, right? Yeah, I used, uh, it's Oralex. So there's about five different kinds of Oralex in here. Are you happy with it? Uh, I, I can't tell because, Unfortunately, I've given my ears an absolute belting um, over the last 40-odd <laughs> years. So what I'm hearing could sound great, but could sound terrible to somebody else. Um, so I don't really know. So I, I've obviously sent files off to Robbo in Sydney. I've um, also hassled George <laughs> as well um, since I've known George just to get some feedback on what this is actually sounding like. Is it better than what you had? Uh, the last one I built before I moved here... Um, no, I don't think it is, actually. I think the last one I built, as far as isolation was concerned, was fantastic. And I was mm -hmm. under a flight path, didn't hear a thing. Uh, this one, I think, uh, acoustically works okay, but I haven't isolated properly because I put the sliding patio door, and that was my mistake, I think. And so I get this low frequency from trucks or passing buses going down the street, that low frequency, you know, from a, from a big diesel engine. Well, let's just talk about the acoustic treatment for a second, because one of the problems with a very small room like that is the fact that you're caught between a, a rock and a hard place. If you don't treat it and maybe over-treat it, then you're going to get some very interesting resonances that are happening, and the low end is usually going to be a little funny. So you tend to over-treat a small room. Uh, that being said, when you do that, you also make it very dead. Now, for what you're doing, if you're doing, you're doing vo uh, voiceovers, that's probably a really good thing, and you can get away with it. For someone that was doing music, it might be way too dead, in fact. The other byproduct of that is, when it gets very dead like that, it could also be claustrophobic to the person in the room, especially if they're, they have to be there for long periods of time. So, therein lies the balance that you have. And one of the things I've learned from watching major acousticians and studio designers is the fact that this is a black art to some degree. There's a lot of things that are, are very easy to understand and very easy to explain. But even when you get the people that are scientists, so to speak, acoustic scientists in doing this, the last 10% is still uh, experimentation. You know, and it's still trial and error, moving things around to see if we can make it better. And a lot of times you can, even though you're looking at what the paper says and what the, the math says, and you still have to do it by ear when it's all said and done. Bobby, I mean, dealing with small rooms, I mean, when, you, when, you, when I look at online calculators, room calculators for modes and blah, 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 
there's a certain size where the calculators just don't seem to work anymore, right? When it gets to a certain small dimension. Yeah. Have you found that to be true? And at that point, you know, a lot of the classical acoustic rules just kind of fly out the window. Yeah. Well, you know, again, there's a certain type of room that's going to work and it's basically a, uh, a rectangle. And that's usually your best kind of room with a high ceiling, you know, but guess what? <laughs> we rarely get that. And especially in a, a voiceover booth. So you, you deal with what you have. And, you know, again, one of the biggest problems there is the temptation of maybe making it a square booth. And that's absolutely the worst thing you can do. Let's say you got an eight by eight by eight, you know, it's, oh, that is absolutely the worst. And, and there you really have a problem. To make it simple, there's reflections that are going all over the place that are reinforced. And when you have odd size rooms or a, uh, an odd size wall, ceiling, whatever it might be, then you're getting rid of some of that, or at least it becomes a pleasing resonance or a pleasing reflection. So, I mean, it, there's a couple of ways to look at this. You can get something that, that's actually okay, to, you know, pleasing reflections that sound good, and you can get some that just sound god-awful. And obviously, those are the ones that we want to get rid of. So, you know, when we get a square room, a cubic room, I should say, then all of a sudden, um, you know, we're, we have the worst of all worlds. That's why we try to stay away from that. So in the world of home studios, though, we sometimes don't have a choice. What are, what are some of the things you could look at if you're stuck with a square room? What sort of things are we looking at to try and resolve that sort of issue? Base trapping, usually. Uh, you really have to over-trap at that point. One of the problems is when you begin to add a lot of treatment, a lot of trapping, the inside volume decreases a lot. So the usable dimensions inside become much smaller. Mm-hmm. So you're starting off with the booth that's, you know, whatever it might be, let's say you know, four by five or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden you've, you've lost a foot in every side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, that, and that's not good either. So you kind of have to understand that, you know, there's your, that's a byproduct here of having a small room, but really it's, it's a lot of trapping. Now, again, there's two approaches. One is if you really want it quiet and you do for a voiceover, it's a completely different approach, then that's not so bad. If you're doing music of any kind, then you don't want it over-trapped you, or, or too um, reflection-free. You like some of those reflections because it sounds more natural. So the approach is different. I've told folks, you know, when they're like, I think I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to over treat the room. Like I'm going to use too much foam or whatever and say it's a four by five room, you know, and I joke and I say, well, if you were to over treat the room, there'd be room for the microphone, but not you, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you would have it so full of materials that there'd just be physically no room to stand. That's over treated, but you really for voiceover in a small room, you almost can't over treat the room. I mean, that's been my experience. Um, you, you need to leave a little bit of room for the engineer <laughs> to be able to play with it. And as, right. if you can make it as dead as possible without sucking the life out of your voice, uh, which can happen. You know, sometimes it's good to have a lively wall uh, just to make it sound a little bit more real. Yeah. Well, you know, there's another thing here that I wanted to bring up because I looked at the pictures and what you described um, of the room with the, the foam. Foam is not the best way to go, generally speaking. Now, 
it actually could work okay in a voiceover room. It doesn't work well for music. There's a couple reasons. First of all, people are under the impression, oh, I'll put all this acoustic foam in, and all of a sudden, I'll, I'll have total isolation, <laughs> which that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, egg cartons, egg cartons do that, don't yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So then, the well, egg cartons actually do serve a purpose, believe it or not. That it's diffusion, but it's mm. not quite. That's no, not going to dead the sound, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But anyway, what happens with um, foam is it works really well at higher frequencies. When you get below a thousand hertz, all of a sudden it's working less well, and it doesn't work at all under a hundred and fifty or so, or probably even higher. So if the low end is important, then you, foam won't work for you. So again, in music, that's that may be more the case. In voiceover, you don't much care so much about that because you're getting the proximity effect on the microphone if you're close up on it, and that will compensate for some of it. Yeah, that's that's a big way that we compensate for small rooms is mic place or mic proximity. You know, choking up on the mic. Um, I find the smaller the room, the smaller the window of error mm, on the mic yeah. placement you know in a really small booth that window is tiny i have a question for you guys about voiceovers that, that i don't know do you always use a directional pattern on a microphone or is there an occasion when you might use omni uh i think for someone in a home studio uh who's just a you know a, a an average voice actor who doesn't really understand why you would use a different pattern or something along those lines. Uh, generally keep it directional. But if you're experimenting and if it helps with the acoustics of the room, it might be something worth worth trying. But not every mic has a, a, an Omni pattern on it. As an audio engineer, I use Omni if I'm recording uh, like a group conversation. So if I'm doing, a, say, a radio commercial and it's, uh, you know, four people in a bar or something, then I'll get the four talent in at the same time and I'll stick one microphone up in the middle of the room and stick it on Omni um, and just record that. Um, obviously, it's got to be a good recording because you have no, no way of going back afterwards. Um, so you've got to make sure you get it right in the recording. But I, I, I like to do that only because I find you get a better performance, firstly. Um, and secondly, when you're trying to make it sound right and fit into the scene of what that sort of mental image you're trying to create, I like to try and do that. So, um, so yeah, there are times I'll use Omni. Absolutely. Now, talking about Omni, though, if we had who was talking about that recently, saying it would work well for a voiceover if your room was, if you if you had a good room, using Omni would actually give you a bit more air, a bit more sort of. I'm trying to think of what, what the there word was. There was someone who was talking about that, wasn't there? I can't remember. It, was, it was it Jeff Silverman talking about that or was Might it Robert? Been. Could have been Robert, actually. Well, the, re the reason why I bring it up is when I first moved to Los Angeles and was working as an engineer, I started to get a lot of work as a vocal engineer, just recording vocals for people. And everybody loved my vocal sound. And the reason why, which I didn't tell anybody and I stumbled upon it accidentally was the microphones they're always condenser microphones uh, I always placed the pattern in Omni and everybody kept on saying my voice sounds so natural, it sounds so good it's like oh okay well <laughs> this is a secret um, 
And then a few years later, I had a long conversation with Al Schmidt, the great engineer Al Schmidt. He's done uh, his 22 Grammys and uh, has done everybody you can think of. And he said, you know, I record everything in Omni and I rarely use um, a directional pattern. And one of the reasons, again, that kind of works is maybe the maybe you want the proximity effect and you can use it to your advantage. And I've found the voiceover talent know how to do that better than anybody. But sometimes you don't, especially in someone with someone that isn't as experienced. So you put up an Omni and that rules out the proximity effect does it does yeah. it rule it out completely a hundred percent pretty much yeah so so as long as the room's tuned well obviously mm. and um the room is quiet you have those two sorted then putting an omni up isn't always a bad idea i mean sometimes it's, it's going to work pretty nicely they it allows them to be a lot more relaxed on their mic placement i would imagine too huh I don't think it's that as much as the frequency response, which mm. is, um, it's a lot smoother. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Mm. Now, I, I guess if if you're going to get the entire room ambiance, it may actually make it sound more real. Yeah. And actually, you know, I think that's overblown somewhat. Um, people think that it picks up equally 360 degrees, but that's not exactly the case. It picks up. 360 degrees, but it's more on the front of the microphone, you know, is the loudest point still, but uh, it's not directional, so to speak. I love playing. I mean, I, very few of my clients, uh, voiceover actors are going to have mics with multi-pattern for budget reasons and otherwise. But it is interesting for the occasion where they do have the ability to adjust the polar pattern, either with a remote on the power supply with a knob or... And it is really an interesting experiment to turn that and see how sometimes what you never would have thought would have worked works better. And that sometimes ends up being, believe it or not, figure eight as well. Yes, right. Um, you know, in a small space, if there's a big computer monitor to the side or a big piece of glass, canceling that out in the uh, figure eight pattern sometimes works wonders. Um, you know, so it's not always about just a cardioid pattern, you know, that there are patterns that work for different situations. Isn't that the beauty of audio, though? Those times that you go, shit, this is never going to work, but I'll give it a go, and all of a sudden you have that alleluia moment where you go, oh, my God, listen to that. Yeah. yeah. That's the good part. So what, if, you were, if you were going to, as a, as a voice talent, experiment using uh, Omni, what's the criteria for the space you're in to make sure it doesn't sound awful? Well, since you are getting reflections, you, the reflections are important. So either the lack of reflections, you're in a dead room, or at least good-sounding reflections. One of the problems of many rooms, especially rooms with low ceilings, is the fact that you're getting a lot of bounce off, off the ceiling that isn't very good-sounding. And that ends up kind of negating any positives that you might have with Omni. So... You know, again, if you don't have the room for it, it's probably not going to work. But it, I would say it most likely would in a, a vocal, a voiceover booth that's uh, fairly dead. Again, the big problem is if you have a window there and the window happens to be capturing some, or capturing is the wrong word, um, uh, reflecting, you know, some frequencies back, that might not be good, but you can always fix that. That's easy. Yeah, well, I'd yeah. Sort of well I've got a sort of like the big sort of double glass door to my right, but I don't know how much of effect, how much of an effect that that glass would have. 
Also that comes into, into play is how loud the voice actor talks. Of course, the louder you get, the more the acoustics of the room come into into play. So um, if you're doing video games or you're doing a lot of loud stuff, that's that's going to be a little bit more critical. Yeah. If you're uh, if you're a normal voice actor like me, and you know you're just doing conversational stuff that's really not overblown or over over projected, uh, the acoustics of the room don't become quite as critical, and you can get away with glass in there and and, and those sorts of things. Although I can't wait to try Omni Pattern now. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm there as well. Well, you know, it's funny because glass is, uh, I can't say it's a new trend, but it's something that people aren't afraid of any longer. There was one point in time where it was so taboo, you'd never see glass, you'd never see windows in a studio. But now that's not the case. People have learned to embrace, you know, what you get from them. And the one thing you get is light. You'd say, well, I'll take that since it feels better. But there's also the glass is different. I mean, now laminated glass doesn't ring like the old stuff used to. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, it makes a big difference. Yeah, I, I just did a studio a couple of years ago for a client that from the outside almost looks like, I mean, it's not, but it looks a little bit like a fish tank. We have two mitered glass corners, you know, and there's lots of glass on both sides. But because the ceiling is so high and it's a peaked ceiling, we were able to over-treat the rest of the room and once we made sure the mic wasn't getting any early reflections off the glass, you know, we ended up getting what now turns out to be a really great sounding studio that looks like it breaks all the rules. Uh, so it's really interesting what you can get away with if the room is tall enough or has enough open space around it. I have a friend who's a studio designer in Nashville, Carl Tatz, and Carl actually incorporates glass into his designs. Nice. So he may have a whole wall that's nothing but mirrored glass and um it's broken up every you know three or four feet with something that's soft but nonetheless there's a lot there and it makes the room especially a small room look a lot bigger and all those rooms sound really great so you can't say it's a negative the interesting thing is when you do voiceovers though if you're in a, a space that's actually quite reflective and that gets sent off to someone like robbo to uh, engineer <laughs> the engineer will go oh, God, you know, reflection yeah, right, everywhere. Right. But then, uh, when they finished, add a bit of reverb to the voice just to give it a bit of life. So, <laughs> yes, but I can control, yes, but I can control that. <laughs> <laughs> right, and engineers need to have control. Yeah. That is the key thing exactly. about being an engineer. Yeah. Well, wouldn't you use something like uh, isotope uh, yeah. de-reverb or something? Rid of that? Yeah, you would. You would. It's. It's. Look. It's. I guess it's like anything, you can fix it, but it's always to the detriment, even the smallest fix is still to the detriment of the finest final audio. So the less I have to do to it to make it sound right to begin with, the better quality I have to start then processing with. Does that make sense? Am I making sense when I say that? Oh yeah, absolutely. You're preaching the choir here. Uh, when I do my podcasts, uh, I have very famous engineers and producers on who should know totally better than, than being in a very reflective room and being three feet from the microphone or computer or something like that. And it rings so much. And even though I plead with them, please go into a quiet room, um, I find myself putting um, denoise on. And it, as you say, it doesn't help the sound. <laughs> Usually, I mean, it, it helps the fact that it, it doesn't ring as much, but um, it's not as pure as it was. Yeah, I can fix it, but it's not going to sound as good as it should. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Do you find that you have that issue with old school engineers? 
as opposed to some of the younger people coming in? Yes, I think that's true, as a matter of fact. But most of it is, uh, it's certainly unconscious. They're not thinking about that. If they did, they would approach it differently. Uh, I've done interviews with some people where, you know, they're in a great studio on a U-47. <laughs> and of course, it sounds terrific then. And, and you know, they're uptight with it. So it's like, wow, I can't ask for better than that. But uh, most of them are on their laptop. Their laptop is sitting on the desk, you know, three feet in front of them. So, Do you think it's a slight, um, possibly a slight um, lack of familiar, familiarity with the medium? Yeah. You know? oh, and they think, think of it as, this is, a, this is a phone interview. It's, it's going to sound like a phone. Who cares? But they don't realize that, you know, we're, we're, Dan and I do it. We're doing it now. Sound quality for us in our world is 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 important, and so we you know we focus on it. So that, it could be part of it too, maybe. One of the problems that I find is there's a hassle factor involved. Yeah, and the least hassle I can put someone through, the better. Right. Because in the beginning, I tried to make it as good as possible, and I gave people instructions on what to do, and a lot of times it just wound up I. I got them on their cell phone and <laughs> it was easier. Yeah. At least I got them, you know? Yeah. Totally familiar. Dan and I host a live show every week and we have voice actors and coaches and all these folks that know about studios and about two thirds of the time, they are not in, They're the in their living environment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we were quite familiar with that situation and uh, we work, we do the best we can and we try not to put people out too much. Um, you know, there's, there's, that's always going to be a factor until someday, there's the most amazing magical iPhone plug-in ever that can correct for every possible audio problem. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, and connect on. We'll Skype. have that next week. I yeah, think. yeah, yes. we're a little, a little ways away from that. Uh, but comes in the package, voice emulation or something. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no real noise and no real person. Um, have you ever recorded a spoken voice, Bobby? Yes, I'm sure I have. I'm trying to recall. Oh, okay, I know him. I haven't done much, but I filled in for two or three weeks for a friend. Again, this is way, way back when I first got to Los Angeles. Uh, he worked at a, a media house that did mostly commercials, radio and television commercials, and the audio for them. And uh, I filled in for a couple of weeks. So I did all sorts of things, especially audiobooks, the beginning of audiobooks and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and then... Um, in the beginning of DVDs, when we got uh, commentary tracks and stuff like that, so did some of that as well. How different did you find the discipline working with a spoken voice as opposed to a singing voice? I think it's similar, but it all depends on experience. If you get an experienced voiceover talent, then they know what to do. You don't have to ask them to do much. Or if you do, they know right what you're talking about, and it's really easy. And it's the same with the vocalist. If you have someone with a lot of experience, they kind of produce themselves. They know what to do. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. I just did a, a session not too long ago. I had the Tower of Power horn section. Nice. And these guys were so awesome. And I was producing the session. I didn't have to say a word to them. They, you know, it, they'd know when they made a mistake. They'd know. They'd say, "Oh, go back, go back. Let's do that." And they did the whole thing themselves, and it came out much better than I if I would have put my two cents in. I think that that's the case in general with working with pros that are very experienced. They just know what to do. 
Interesting you should say that, that they said, oh, we made the mistake, we'll go back. Um, one of the bad things about working as a voice person from home is you get into that habit because you're recording yourself. You make a mistake, mm. you stop, you go back, pick it up and keep going. I've seen, in fact, I saw this when I was in New York. Uh, the last time I was there, a talent came into a studio, was doing a voiceover and kept stopping and going back and stopping and going back. And of course, the engineer and producer are like, what is going on here? Well, I, I, you know, I have a story about that actually too. Uh, myself, I've done a, a fair amount of voice work as a talent and, and it was mostly for um, lynda.com. I don't know if you're familiar with well, lynda.com yeah. is now LinkedIn Learning, but uh, I have uh, 21 courses or something of which a lot of them are screen grabs and then you'd have to, you know, speak to the screen. And um, I learned what they wanted and I've used that ever since because I've done a lot of my own courses since then. And what it was, they said, you can stop all you want. Just say um, one more. So we know what you're, you know that you're going to do it again, and I got into such a habit of doing it that even now, when I don't have to, I find myself doing it. But uh, <laughs> it, it is helpful when I go back to edit because uh, I know exactly what I have to do and where it is. So I think it's important that um, you kind of have a, a a method, and that was the one that they use and the one I use now. I think the issue was in the other studio was that, was that basically the engineer and producer was like. We will call it. We will tell you when to stop and go uh, back. Yeah. You, you're not calling it. You're the talent. You just keep reading until we, we tell you what to do. That yeah. was the issue. Well, again, tell me. I, I don't See, I don't think that's a good way to do it because the talent al always knows when they've done it well or when they can do it better. It doesn't matter what you're doing. And, and, you know, if you're in the studio and if you've have had any experience, you know when you can do it better. So you should have the call as the talent. You know what? Years of sitting in in voiceover sessions for you know major national clients and even international clients doing radio and TV commercials for me, it's always amazed me that um, if I'm not in control of the session, the, the 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 producers from the agency will usually run it, and they'll mm. they'll they'll sort of go, "Oh, give us one like this, give us one like this." Oh no, we want one like that, we want one like that, blah blah blah. And then the last mm. one they'll do is, "Why don't you give us the one the way give us one the way you hear it." Right, right. And yeah. to me, that's where you should start. To me, that should yeah. be the very first one. All right, give us one way you hear it. Right, let's go from there. Yep. Oh, God, yeah. And really, I hate all those versions because you're going to use one when it's all said and done and just kind of figure out what it is. I mean, you know, it's the same thing in music where you work with producers and they'll want to do something 30 or 40 times. And I'm not kidding. Oh, geez, more than that. And after a while, you go, you know how difficult it's going to be to sort all this out later? You know, it's going yeah. to take me a couple of days to sort through this. So it's not really helping the cause. Hey, yeah. you, you can never go back through all the versions. And this has been my argument since the day, first day I sat down behind a, a, a digital editing software. Is, you know, if we were back in reel-to-reel -reel days, we'd maybe do half a dozen takes and we'd probably cut a version out of those half a dozen, but that half a dozen would be more than enough. Maybe a half, maybe, let's say a dozen, half a dozen is probably too few. But these days, you're right. These days you can rack up, you know, an hour of recording just to do a 30 second radio commercial, or I guess in the States, your case, 60 seconds. But it's, um, it's just ridiculous how much sort of material you can record. And, and for, for me, half the time, it's just for the hell of it. 
That yeah, was a, right, right. That was a great quote from it's, Richard Lush um, when we talked to him a couple of years back, and he was doing music for the 2000 Olympics. And uh, the vocalist had done a take, and he said to the engineer, let's get another take. And the engineer said, well, do you want me to keep the last one? He said, well, if I wanted you to keep the last one, I wouldn't need another one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got to work with some some of the top brass and voiceover over the years. The topmost, for sure, being um, the late Don LaFontaine. And, you know, oh, in, in his last few years, you know, he he was always professional. But I remember sitting in his studio because I was his tech and I would fix things and he'd be in there doing an ISDN session. And kind of towards the end, you know, he was working with more and more younger, uh, less uh, experienced directors. And that was the problem. You know, they'd get the Don Reed, the one that Don, the one you're hiring him for, the one that you know you're going to get. And it was almost as though, well, it can't be that easy. So I'm going to have to have you do it again in a different way, yeah. in a different way. And then I need to, they need to have, they need to have it. They need to cover their butt and make sure they've got, you know, at least four ways to do this by Don. And at once I may have heard Don ever say, I think you, I think you got it on the first take or something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think every seasoned voice actor has wanted to say that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. session. I got to tell you this story just just off the the back of that there's a, a an Australian voiceover guy a gentleman called Kev Goldsby who's been around forever and he was back in the late 40s, early 50s. I don't know whether you guys had it over there in the States, but we had movie tone news. So you wouldn't have a television. You'd go to the movies and before the movie, you would see the news. And Kev was the voice of that. It was like, you know, and on Parramatta Road, blah, 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 blah. This quintessential voice that every time you think of movie tone news, you would, you would <laughs> hear Kev's voice. And... About oh, 12 years ago, I was the, the senior sound designer at a studio here in Sydney and uh, this young creative had written a script around movie tone news and came in all excited because he'd found this guy, Kev Goldsby, who sounded just like the movie tone news guy. <laughs> <laughs> so we all sort of bit our tongues. Oh, yeah, okay, blah, blah, blah. So Kev comes in for the, for the, uh, for the session. And the first take goes down and I open the talk back and, and this young creative goes, yeah, it's pretty close, but I just think blah, 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 blah. So half a dozen takes later or nine or 10 takes later, we're still hearing, yeah, it's close, but I'm not sure it's right. So finally <laughs> I turned off the talk back and I turned around to this guy and I went, you know, Kev is the movie tone news voice. <laughs> and this poor guy, his face went white. <laughs> and I reopened the, reopened the talk back and he went, Actually, yeah, I think we, I think we're very close. Actually, if we could just do one more, well, any voice actor who's been doing this a while, and they get the uh, the script direct or the what do they call it? The Andrew, when you get a script and it says like so and so. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We want. Have you gotten like. one yet that has your own name as the like so and so? Yet? No, I, I haven't know. actually. <laughs> but I hear you. about that here. <laughs> I've heard about that happening here um, where a voice actor gets their own name as the <laughs> one that should sound like they audition actually, and they don't win the job. That is actually, I'd tell a lie, that happened to me three weeks ago. My agent sent me a video link of a documentary I'd voiced and said, the same film company is looking for, she said, but just ignore the, <laughs> ignore the email because it says, I want it to sound like 
Andrew, you know, on the on this thing, and I, it's like, well, okay. It is me. So, so I recorded my version of this new documentary series and didn't get the job. <laughs> you obviously don't sound uh, like Andrew at all. No, it does not me at all. Yeah. Let's shift gears a little bit to, um, before we let you go, up to, um, to some microphones. Now, we talked about Omni and everything. For you in your world, Bobby, are you a guy who's got got to have his mics, or are you a guy that's going to take what's available and make it work? I'm not an equipment guy from the standpoint that whatever's there, I'll make it work and I'll make it sound good. I've been doing it long enough; I know what it should sound like, so I don't feel like I'm hindered by what I have. And obviously, I have preferences, but you know what? It's okay. <laughs> if my preferences aren't met, we'll we'll make it work. That's that's the voice of experience right there. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what you know, I I I had some time in some big studios early on, but very briefly, and I kind of thrust myself into the real world as quickly as I could out of college and built a remote recording RV truck in the Philadelphia in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I was using whatever I could afford and I feel like that was a really great basis of education, which was using the mics that were available to me in the situation that was available to me and get the best possible result sound out of that, you know? And one time I I did an eight track digital recording of a big band, you know, 18, 17 piece band in a studio. And when I was finished the mix and I let someone from the school who actually runs the studio heard the mix and they said, where did you record that? I said, right here in this studio. And they're like, no, that can't be this studio. And I was constrained to eight tracks because that's all I had. I had a yeah. eight preamp interface and that, that I just used what I had. But because I was using fewer mics placed in the right place, they were getting better, better recordings out of that. I got better recordings out of that room than the guys that run that room normally who probably put 20 mics up. Yeah, right. You know, and that constrainment ended up in a better recording in the end. And I, you know, to this day, I appreciate that, um, having that as a basis, not having every tool in the arsenal known to mankind um, at my disposal. Well, you know, coming back to the, the question of gear and preferences, I did some work with Ken Scott, who was one of the five Beatle engineers and the Super Tramp and all of David Bowie's big albums and you know, quite a notable producer and engineer in his own right and uh i was tracking something and i hired him to come in and track because i can't produce and and engineer at the same time i just can't do it but anyway so i brought him in and i noticed something that was very unusual he had to have his particular setup no matter what so he rented in mics whatever he wanted because this was the way he did it and then i realized why Unlike most people who will add EQ, most engineers will add EQ depending on what they're recording and tailor the sound to how they think it should fit. Ken did it the opposite. He EQ'd the microphones. He didn't EQ the the talent or the instrument. He EQ'd the microphones. So in other words, you could replace whatever you wanted in front of that microphone and it always sounded good. Because once he applied his EQ, that was it. He was he was compensating for the negatives of the microphone. Yeah. Wow. And I thought sk- that was a really interesting approach. Yeah. There's a real skill set in that, isn't there? That's yeah. clever. Well, 
well, a lot of his experience too. It's you know using the same gear for so long that you just know what yeah. it's supposed to like be like yeah. and and what its negatives wow. are. Wow. Yeah. Now here's a question for you, Bobby. If um, and we're, we're building a studio now for someone like Dan or myself, got a voiceover person they want to set up at home. What are the key things? If you had a an open checkbook, what would you do? How would you build the booth, and what equipment would you put in there? <laughs> well, for for equipment, it would be a really good microphone and a really good preamp. Uh, you know, I, I guess that's a no-brainer. Everybody knows that. Uh, microphone, well, depends on the preference of the uh, the voice actor because, you know, what sounds best on them. So that's the first thing. Uh, obviously, you'd, you'd want to be in a location where it's out of a flight path, you don't have trucks, <laughs> you know, you, you don't have uh, uh, built-in isolation problems because of the neighborhood, because of the location. That's not always possible, obviously, but if it is, then, you know, that's something you can definitely control and you can fix a lot of the problems before they even start. I was going to say, hearing you talk about mics and preamps in there, I'd be interested to go back on a topic we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We had a, a question from a listener who's a music engineer who's moving into voiceover, and he was asking whether we felt that preamps were necessary anymore. I'd like to get your take on on preamps that sort of are built into equipment these days versus you know um, external mic pre's. Well, certainly what's now built into most of the gear you get, the interfaces and whatever, is probably better than it's ever been. That being said, you have to think for a second, okay, so it costs the manufacturer a dollar or two dollars to put this in as compared to an outboard preamp that you pay, you know, anywhere from a hundred dollars to thousands of dollars. So just think about that. What, What is going to sound better? The outboard one is going to sound better, regardless of, of how much you pay for it. But, you know, obviously the higher end stuff is, there's no question. You go side by side and you can hear the difference. And I think when it comes to a pro, especially, the nuances are everything. That's why people are hiring you. And inexpensive gear kind of rules out those, those nuances. It smooths them out where you get some better gear and in fact it puts the focus on those nuances so that that's why i think it's worth spending the extra dough after the room is i always say like after your room is sorted you know your acoustics are dialed mm-hmm. and you've got that noise floor down where you want it to be you know then then you can start picking out the shades of maw if you want to paint the walls <laughs> yeah so yeah. those preamps with the different transformers and tube or not tube and that's your different arrays of tone color tones of moth it's like i, I don't know why i chose that color but whatever <laughs> it's it's an obscure color but you know you have a lot of moths to choose from at that point so to the to the non-technical they're all moth you know it's like they're, they're <laughs> yeah, all kind yeah, of right. the same right I, I don't see the difference um, but to the engineer and the person that matter that cares, the producer that really has listened to a lot of things, those shades of mauve are a big deal. <laughs> like you really, you know, and so I, that's the way I kind of think of it. Um, you, you know, something that's overlooked a lot too, I think is the playback system and also the headphone monitoring system. Yeah. And that should be, there should be extra care in that because 
You know, if you hear yourself really well, you can perform a lot better. And if you hear yourself especially well and it sounds really good, you can go for a lot longer and be less fatigued. So that's something that gets overlooked frequently, and I think there should be more of a spotlight on it. Mm-hmm. So you're yeah, talking I mean, about we, headphone mm-hmm. amplifiers being um, having a good headphone amp? Is that what you mean? Yeah, 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 and and good phones, obviously. Yeah, was well, interesting because I I always get told off by George <laughs> and, uh, about the bleed from my headphones. So now I wear sort of industrial <laughs> drummers headphones when I'm in here. <laughs> Oh, okay. What were you using out of curiosity? Were you using open air? I was using, yeah, I was using uh, just AKGs, K141s, okay. you know, just yeah. a sort of basic stock, studio stock. Uh, now I've got these extreme isolation headphones. I have a pair of Sennheiser HD 650s, which I love. They really sound terrific, but they are open back and I can't use them for something like this because they just don't sound good. So I've been using for a long time now uh, Audio Technica um, ATHM fifties or yeah fifty X's yeah and they seem to work pretty well they're yeah. enough isolation they're comfortable enough yeah those are my those are one of my go tos for because the majority of the time honestly I'm not in a studio environment when I'm doing critical listening and I I tend to use my Audio Technicas and my Bayer DT seven seventies as well. Oh, they're very good um, as well. You know, just they, yeah. In a perfect world, a nice open back pair of cans is fantastic. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm often trying to listen to the noise floor and analyze the noise floor. I'm listening to audio very analytically more than musically. So for me, it's pretty much always closed back uh, cans. Um, you know and. Voice actors themselves, you know, there's a bit lot of debate whether they should even be wearing them while recording, while acting. Um, you know, a lot of voice coaches say don't wear them because it colors your performance. You're you're acting to your own to yourself, and you're acting into your headphones. And others say, well, you need to learn how to do it because when you go into a studio, they're going to expect you to wear them, and they're going to have to have them on your head. So learn it. Um, you know, so it's interesting the the range of advice that you're going to hear about that. Um, do people actually do that though? The, the voice actors actually not use them? Oh yeah, it's very common for voice actors to to not wear them while voice acting because they're trying to treat the microphone and the script and the piece that they're doing literally as as as, as acting and to mm-hmm. to to a lot of folks especially with less experience, the headphones are this other world thing now where it's being, your voice is now fed back and pumped into your skull. And it changes the way you behave on mic and the way you act when you're still learning to act. I think when you've had 15, 20 years into this thing, you've, you've got the acting dialed. Um, and I think you can probably compensate for that. But it definitely is, there's some truth to the fact that the headphones color that acting uh, change the way people work the mic or, you know, they, they start to get a little bit radio because they're trying to sound great on the radio versus <laughs> trying to sound like a real person who's selling this, trying to sell you McDonald's French fries. <laughs> My argument would be always wear headphones and learn how to act with them. Don't learn how to act and then get thrown in the deep end with headphones. Or it's the classic one ear on, one ear off. And I've also worked is, with a voice artist yeah. who was 
who was doing voiceover to picture and would just hold the headphones in his hand <laughs> just down low and would just lift them for his cues and then drop them again. So just listen to dialogue sync, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here comes my voiceover line, Head, put the headphones down, drop the next line in and then lift them up to listen again. So um, Yeah. Mm, so, yeah, interesting. It sounds like too much work. Does to yeah, me. Well, I guess yeah. it, 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 Ross Higgins was his name. He was a really famous oh, Australian yeah. actor, and um, he hated headphones. He just never wore them. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> All right, now Bobby, we've got um, your ideal studio. We've got a beautiful microphone, great preamp, good headphone amp, good headphones. Now we're into the construction of the booth itself. What are we looking for, and what should we be doing? Well, ideally, you'd be using a uh, what they call MSM construction, mass spring mass. This is typical studio construction. Basically, what it means is a wall within a wall. And the spring part, believe it or not, is not um, fiberglass, which everybody thinks. It's actually an airspace. Airspace is better than having it filled. So this is what we have uh, at the classic MSM construction which gives you the most depending on how you do the walls it will give you massive isolation now again the big thing is the booth has to be decoupled classic way of doing it there you would have a um, you'd be on a concrete slab and you come in with a diamond saw and you would saw around the booth around the studio whatever it might be and then you decouple it from the outside concrete Again, the classic way of doing it. The other way, of course, would be putting it on springs, which it's not that great, uh, or some sort of uh, rubber springs, actually. And that kind of works. And then uh, that gives you your isolation there. When it gets to um, acoustic treatment, then we're looking at, again, the classic way of doing things. The reason why people keep on using the classic way is because it works. And really what what it comes down to is how much of this are you going to use? So you're, you're making soft walls. At least some of them are soft. Two out of the four. Or you're putting soft, and when I say soft, it means some sort of fiberglass, usually compressed fiberglass or rock wool, which is better, I think. Or classic 702 fiberglass, compressed fiberglass. They come in four by two sheets, so that's kind of perfect to make sound panels. So you make enough of those, and then you, you can start by just randomly placing them. And by randomly placing them, what you'll find is then whatever reflections you have on one wall will be absorbed on the other, the opposite wall. So just by doing that, you're in pretty good shape right off. Next problem would be any kind of low-end resonances that you have, and the best way around that is a base trap. There's all sorts of base traps, but the cheapest and easiest way to do it is something called a super chunk. Super chunk is um, it's kind of silly in a way. Like I say, you had you get these four feet by two feet uh, slabs of um, either one inch, two inch, or four inch 702 or rock wool. And you'll cut it in half. So now you have two sheets of two by two. And then you cut each of those into triangles. And now yeah, you it's stack, like stacking slices of cheese. Yeah, <laughs> and you stack them up in the corner, and then you put some sort of a frame over it—a a frame with a um, fabric, which is fairly easy to make, so it looks good. But there's your base trap, and you just uh, either add more or less of those chunks 
to uh, tune the trap, and you may have to do an, an, another corner. Sometimes you have to do two and three or four, uh, but that's a way to do it. Actually, there, there are a lot more corners that you have because people always think of the corners of the room, but in fact, every, there's a, a corner in every, uh, every intersection of the room. So the ceiling to the wall is a, a corner, and the, the wall to the floor there's a corner there. Ideally, you'd want to control these corners, but you don't have to do them all. So, you know, you just start with the one or two, and, and that should control the low-end resonances. It's, it's simple. Like I say, none of this stuff is really rocket science. It's easy enough that you can do, I don't want to say randomly, but you can do without sitting down and, and doing a lot of math and really get in the ballpark for not a lot of money. And, and we're not talking about isolation. Isolation is expensive, no matter which way you look at it. But acoustically treating a room is, is fairly easy and, and inexpensive. You, you can make it surprisingly good for not a lot of money and not a lot of, of effort. Have you ever dealt with those uh, tri-corner panels that actually are equilateral equilateral triangles that go in the like the upper corner, the tri-corners? Have you ever dealt with those? I have not, but they look like they should work really well. Yeah. I, I, and, and I understand, mm-hmm. you know, the physics behind it. it. It should work well because there again, we're talking about multiple corners because you have the corner of the walls intersecting and the corners of, of the wall to the ceiling intersecting. So you're actually taking care of uh, a number of them. So you talk about right angled corners, I guess. Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, think of the intersection of each of the two walls and the ceiling above, right? So you have a tri-corner and um, there's a company that I've used, Prime Acoustic, that makes a tri-corner panel. Um, and what makes it even more, you know, makes it a good kit is they have a way of mounting it that is doable. Because that That's the hard very, part, yeah. Yeah, hard to mount. And they have a very good mounting system. And uh, I did a small voiceover booth, well, maybe 10 by 12 recently, and did those in the top four corners and based sort of a corner diagonal trap on the top four perimeter wall ceiling intersections. And man, did that room sound nice. It just deadened it down just the right amount. It killed all the low-end resonance, um, you know, and it doesn't encroach on the room too much because it's all towards the ceiling. So that would worked out really well. Prime Acoustics really makes some good stuff, I have to say. And now you, you could buy things off the shelf where you couldn't five years ago even. Well... Maybe a little more than that, but, uh, you know, recently, now we've gotten to the point where everything you need, you can buy off the shelf and, and it really works. Now, you can build it yourself and save some money, but not everybody wants to swing a hammer. Yeah, and I've, there's a couple companies I've used online. One, Another favorite of mine is ATS Acoustics here. Yeah, and, yeah they're good too. But I'll tell you, in this case, we had a very short timeline, and you would not believe it, but every panel we put into that booth, including the tri-corner base traps, the... Everything was Amazon Prime, which, uh. if you think about it, is kind of mind-boggling to begin with, that there's enough demand for acoustical panels that Amazon has them on Prime two-day shipping. Wow. But it's yeah, true. It's, it. <laughs> it's amazing. That's, that's a great thing, though, the fact that people are cognizant enough to know that they enough people to know that they need it, and there's the demand like that, because that wasn't always the case, as we all know. Oh, absolutely not. Well, I've got to say, this has been uh, really, really interesting. Um, we've learned a lot. 
We know about acoustics, treatment, microphones, and some great tips from uh, Bobby, our special guest this afternoon. I've got to say, thank you very much for spending time with us, Bobby. We really, really appreciate it. Oh, it's it. my pleasure. If anybody uh, wants to find out more about Bobby, you can go to bobbyosinski.com. Uh, you can also check out the podcast, which is bobbyoinacircle.com. And then, of course, the numerous books which you'll find on your website, which is, Bobby? bobbyosinski.com. Boom. There you go. Thanks again for coming in. Also, Dan, I, he's, he's been very quiet this afternoon. But uh, Dan Leonard also joined us. George Whittam, of course, and Robbo in Sydney. And we'll check you next week. That was the Pro Audio Suite. If you have any questions or ideas for a show, let us know via our Facebook, the Pro Audio Suite Podcast. Yeah.